Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hi, I'm on the line now. Um, before we get really way deep into this, can you assure me that you really do represent the interests of His Holiness the Dalai Lama for the purposes of endorsing products? Okay, let's just deal with the Yeti in the room. He's never done a commercial before, but Bob Dylan did two Super Bowl commercials just last night. The Super Bowl, um, it's like if you got 22 of the wisest monks or whatever and put them in one huge monastery to debate the meaning of the sutras to find out who's the best. No, 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 Bob Dylan was not part of that. He just did a commercial, and that's where you receive a large amount of money to convince people to buy something. Uh, that's a very good question. Why do it? Um, well, because we would give him more money than he could possibly imagine, which he would be free to use to help others or, you know, whatever it is he wants to do with it. Uh, well, His Holiness would get on an elevator with a llama on a leash. The animal kind of llama, not the dolly kind. And the llama is carrying some Bud Light on its back. And at the next floor, an actor from The Sopranos gets on with a box of cannoli. And His Holiness says to the llama, leave the Bud, take the cannoli. And they get off on the next floor with the pastries. That's it. (laughs) I know you don't get it, but the point is that we get it. So is that a definite no way? Or... Oh, that's too bad. We were going to start this conversation at $40 million. That's great. Where do you want to meet? While I'm working on this, get ready for the scramble. Today, remembering Philip Seymour Hoffman, watching the Woody Allen scandal flare up again, and gasping at those two Bob Dylan Super Bowl ads. And now he's so relieved that Pete Seeger turned down the Flomax commercial last year. Colin McEnroe. Think where we'd be now if that happened. Yes, welcome to our Monday show, The Scramble. Uh, We have a lot to talk about today, and as she suggested, later on we're going to have a conversation about the way over the weekend because of a letter from Dylan Farrow, an open letter kind of to the public, published on Nicholas Kristof's blog uh, in the New York Times, accompanied by a Kristof column about this, a story that has kind of lain dormant, especially here in Connecticut, since 1992 has flared back up again, uh, sometimes surprising people who weren't even alive or particularly aware of things in 1992. Uh, Also, towards the end of the show, we will talk about Super Bowl commercials, specifically what kind of watershed we've crossed, if that's what you do with watersheds, uh, when Bob Dylan, and Bob Dylan has actually done other commercials. And we'll we'll get to all that. We'll explain it all to you then. Um, Sadly, we do want to begin talking about the death of Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, an actor. It's hard to find somebody who doesn't wildly admire uh, his his work in in so many different films. We're very lucky to have with us for most of the way here today, uh, Melanie Kintaya. She's an actor, a humorist, and the author of Actor, Writer, Whatever, Essays on My Rise to the Top of the Bottom of the Entertainment Industry. Uh, Her work is also on OK Player and the Huffington Post. She'll be on a panel about the genre of the memoir at the Big Book Getaway. And where else would you have a conference about books? Uh, The Mohegan Sun, of course, pretty much the epicenter of literary life in Connecticut. That'll be February 22nd. David Edelstein, you know him so well. He's been with us many times, film critic for New York Magazines, for NPR's uh, Fresh Air, and for CBS Sunday Morning. 
David Edelstein, I'm going to just quickly start with you because I know, because uh, I just read your piece on the New York Magazine website about F- uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, somebody with whom you shared a lunch uh, on one occasion and somebody whose work you enjoyed a lot. Uh, I think all of us were just our jaws on our chest uh, yesterday to find out that he was dead at 46 of a heroin overdose. Um, I, I don't know where you want to start, but it seems right really to start with the work. And, and there is something very special about F- Philip Seymour Hoffman. Hard to put your finger on on what it was, but he, he's not like other actors, right? We often say an actor is without vanity, uh, which is a ridiculous thing. All all actors have, have vanity. It just... Uh, you wouldn't be an actor if you didn't have vanity. It just depends on how it um, manifests itself. What what he did, what he had was a kind of anti-vanity vanity. In other words, he was <clears throat> so fearless. He was always searching out the grotesque side of his character, the the reprehensible side, the side that maybe made you not immediately want to like him or get to know him. And his goal, as he uh, expressed to me on many occasions, was, well, many, I mean two, was, pardon me, you know, was to make you recognize things in yourself that you see in him that you never would have faced up to before. Did it work? Not all the time. Um, My... um, my feeling is that he sometimes confused his own self-hatred or his own self-disgust for his integrity as an actor. And um, to me, that got in the way occasionally of certain performances. Uh, he gave a film called Owning, did a film called Owning Mahoney in which he played a compulsive gambler. He's superb in it. He always is. But he doesn't quite ever make you like this guy enough for him to carry the entire movie. So uh, he's a very sad and complicated case, and I think also a very inspiring one to actors. You know, um, I'm going to give David a chance to have a sip of Tab, which I'm sure he has a can of Tab with him right now. I know him that well. Um, And so uh, I'm going to go to you, Melanie, for a second, because, I mean, one of the things that uh, when you were emailing me over the weekend, one of the things I realized about Philip Seymour Hoffman is obviously, although I did meet him infamously, glancingly, once, I basically think of him as this uh, this creature of the movies, and and so often he is playing somebody who's either unlikable or who's somebody who's made a lot of really bad decisions, or somebody who's really trapped at the bottom uh, of some kind of totem pole, uh, and and dealing with all kinds of demons and problems. And it just never occurred to me that he had you know anything resembling a, a normal life. And but you say you'd kind of see him around the neighborhood, right? Oh, definitely. Um... You'd see him when you went to the theater. I've I've seen him at the Joe's Pub and the Atlantic Theater as an audience member watching the show. Um, all along my Facebook feed were people, you know, of the acting community, particularly the Labyrinth Theater here in New York City, where he was a, a big part of, saying he would just attend actor workshops or go and join a cast for drinks. And he was just a man about town. You'd see him in coffee shops, um... Mayor de Blasio called him the quintessential New Yorker, and I think um, New Yorkers in particular are, are deeply saddened by by what's happened. And, and, and a parent. I hadn't really pictured him running around New York with little kids, but I guess, I mean, I didn't, I never studied his biography or anything like that. I didn't realize he had kids or, as I say, a life, but I guess that's also a part of who he was in New York, right? 
Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, I remember one time my husband and I were um, having breakfast at a sidewalk cafe in uh, the West Village at an hour that only parents are awake. And um, he went by with his three kids. They had the same stroller as we did and, uh, you know, gave my husband the dad to dad nod and went along his way. Um, David Edelstein, one of the things that I was struck by was that although I consider myself somebody who's seen a lot of Philip Seymour Hoffman movies, until I jumped on IMDb or, or some other site and really looked at the credits, I didn't realize how many Philip Seymour Hoffman movies uh, I'd seen because so often he's sort of the other guy in the movie who does his job so well that you really don't think of it as a Philip Seymour Hoffman role. I mean, I saw Ides of March. It wasn't the greatest movie in the world. I'd completely forgotten that he's the other guy. I'd forgotten he was Art Howe in Moneyball. I'd forgotten all these performances because he, you know, he didn't really necessarily have to be this this blazing inferno on you know in the front of the screen he he really would just sort of do the job and 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 do it in a very deep and quiet way well the guy liked to work <clears throat> and i don't know if he liked to work because uh he didn't feel like he had enough of a life to go back to which i've i've heard rumblings about or that he was so unhappy in his personal life just with himself that he needed to be constantly working whether it was on stage or on screen, um, but he he took any kind of part. I mean, he was he saw himself as a character actor, and he if he liked the script, if he liked the part, if he respected the director. Obviously, any time uh, uh, P. T. Anderson came knocking, he would he would accept the part. He's amazing in the film Punch Drunk Love mm-hmm. as a kind of sleazy mattress dealer, um, <laughs> you know, and and he. And and he takes roles. Some, sometimes they're very rewarding. Sometimes, as in Art Howe, they're not particularly rewarding. And you say, well, why why did he do that? I think he just wanted to be a – maybe he wanted to be a part of the project. Maybe Brad Pitt, Brad Pitt called him up and said, hey, you know, will you, will you do this for me as a favor? And he said, yeah, sure. That would be fun. Uh, maybe he wanted to play – you know, maybe he wanted to, to be part of a baseball movie because he loved baseball. He loved he loved sports. Um you know, and and how many opportunities did he have? Uh, he just—I don't imagine that he said that. You know, he would ever put up with an agent saying, "Oh no, it's a good script, but but you shouldn't really do it." I mean, it's not really going to—it's not enough money. It's going to take time away from the next Hunger Games movie. I, I don't think he would have put up with that. He he did famously. A production of True West with John C. Riley, mm-hmm. in which they traded parts every other performance, because he just wanted to test himself, see whether or not he. And you know, I saw him. I didn't see both, both in, in incarnations. I saw one of them, and uh, and he was brilliant. Um, so, I don't know. I think it was always a test for him. By the way, if anybody wants to call in with a favorite uh, memory, 860-275-7266. We won't be able to stay with this super long, but we can talk to you right now. 860-275-7266 as we remember Philip Seymour Hoffman. Melanie Kintyre, do you, do you have a favorite Philip Seymour Hoffman performance as a fellow actor? Oh, gosh. <laughs> He's been in everything. I have to say Capote. And I actually uh, saw him in the Q&A after Capote, which was um, very interesting. And it actually reminds me of something that David had said after um, Heath Ledger had passed away and that Heath Ledger maybe didn't have a method to go back to, um, which sort of, you know, a method could kind of ground an actor 
when they um, when they are in these intense roles. But I think Philip Seymour Hoffman very much did have have a method to go back to. But it 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 always reminds me that it's it's very hard to shake intent these intense roles. And he really played some grotesque creatures besides Capote. And you know, you wonder sometimes if if that kind of level of sustain you know sustained work combined with the kind of roles maybe is is quite draining on a person i can imagine yeah i i think that and um also i i think i wrote about this in in a piece that um <clears throat> pardon me you know i'm going to take a drink and you 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 ask another question <laughs> okay. i'm just going to take it you know, i don't you... have any tab here so <laughs> all right so uh while you do that and while you uh, but keep but keep hold of whatever it was you were about to talk about another thing i was going to ask you david uh, and I'll ask, I'll ask it in a long way, so you'll have time to, to drink water. Uh, is you know, I, I'm, I was trying to think of another actor who was, as far as I know, a straight guy who done so many gay roles. You know, a lot of actors do their one gay role, um, but you think about Flawless, you think about Capote, you think about Boogie Nights. Uh, this is a guy, and I'm probably missing a, one other one that I just can't think of right now. Um, maybe you could count the Big Lebowski. I don't, I don't know whether Brandt is supposed to be gay or not. But, um, but you know, but this is a guy who it, it wasn't like a, a little you know vacation he took or something like that. This is a guy who was very comfortable going back to those. I read somewhere where he said when he played a role like that, he didn't think I'm playing a gay role right now. He thought about the role. He thought about the person. Uh, but it, it's you know, I mean. Matt Damon can do behind the cat. I guess he's done too because talented Mr. Ripley, he's gay too. But um, there aren't too many actors who do that a lot, anyway, as much as as Hoffman did. I I have no explanation for it except that he was comfortable in his own skin, um, which is weird because he had a lot of regrets about his weight. I mean, he he hated um, sometimes how he looked. He hated. He told me he hated how easily. Uh, he would put on weight. Uh, at the same time, when he was looking his worst, um, Sidney Lumet asked him to do a scene uh, in the nude where he was lying on top of uh, Marissa Tomei in Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Mm-hmm. And he says, he claims, he didn't really think twice about it. It was just his his body... Um, was his instrument. I mean, I guess that's that's something that a lot of actors say. And for a while, if you're on the outside, maybe you laugh at it. And then the more you get to know actors, the more you realize, well, of course it's their instrument. I mean, everything, you know, if they're not comfortable with this thing, you know, that is representing them, then they can't be much good as actors. You know, his body was his instrument, but his voice also was an amazing instrument. Uh, and there were... Um Movies. I mean, he did some work that was just voice work, obviously, but also movies where he acted primarily with his voice. One that I think of is Almost Famous, where he played a real-life rock critic, Lester Bangs, constantly on the phone, uh, or at least seen on the phone, counseling this young writer for Rolling Stone, William Miller, trying to keep him uh, hewing to the straight and narrow. Uh, a very famous speech from that movie. Let's hear a little of Philip Seymour Hoffman in Almost Famous, and David, have another drink of water. Oh, man. You made friends with them. See, friendship is the booze they feed you. They want you to get drunk and feeling like you belong. Well, it was fun. Because they make you feel cool. And hey, I met you. You are not cool. I know. Even when I thought I was, I knew I wasn't. Because we are uncool. 
No, while women will always be a problem for guys like us, most of the great art in the world is about that very problem. Good looking people, they got no spine. Their art never lasts. Then they get the girls, but we're smarter. Yeah, I can really see that now. Yeah, because great art is about you know, guilt and longing and, you know, love disguises sex and sex disguises love. Hey, let's face it. Yeah, you got a big head start. I'm glad you were home. I'm always home. I'm uncool. Me too. You're doing great. You know? The only true currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with someone else when you're uncool. <laughs> That's Philip Seymour Hoffman as Lester Bangs talking to a young journalist about the actual benefit of being uncool. And Melanie Kintaya, you know, there is, you know, you were talking about uh, did he have a method to go back to. Um, you listen to him there and you also realized you realize he does have stuff for that role in particular. I always felt he had something in him that he could tap into pretty easily. I mean, you know, he played as a normal person in the movie The Savages, which David loved so much, and maybe the closest thing to Philip Seymour Hoffman, the real person. But but you can hear some real reality even in that speech that he can tap into, right? Oh, absolutely. You can hear real reality in almost every every role he played, I feel. That you, you never felt that he was... Um, I think uh, back in the days of yore, acting was very representational, and they would represent, you know, these feelings. But he he was def- there's an honesty to every performance, um, good or good or bad, uh, in in every role he brought to. And I think um, that can be very trying. You know <laughs> how you know how Colin, you know how a dog worries a bone. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman had a tendency to worry his roles. I mean, you can imagine him pacing around the set, saying the lines over and over, trying to make them truly come from his head when when he's on camera, trying to not just say the lines, but but actually to think them. Um, what I was going to say before, though. Um, is that I saw him do Long Day's Journey and Tonight. It was a it was a good production. It was with uh, Vanessa Redgrave and Brian Dennehy and Robert Sean Leonard. And um, he was terrific. I mean, he was it was hard to find exception to anything in his performance. And yet, when you looked at the greatest O'Neill interpreter of all, uh, Jason Robards, you could see there was something missing. He played Jamie Tyrone, uh, who appears in. Uh, also in Moon for the Misbegotten. Uh, the character appears in Moon for the Misbegotten. And Philip Seymour Hoffman got all of the self-hatred of the role, all of the sort of fear of his own demons. But what he didn't quite get was the romantic quality. I mean, O'Neill was very much in the tradition of sort of Irish poet, you know, sort mm-hmm. of sort of bravura, Irish, tragic romanticism. And that wasn't really something that came too easily to Philip Seymour Hoffman. I don't think he liked how he looked enough to do that, to to do that. I don't think he had enough faith that he was an attractive person to be able to do that in, in quite the way that Robarts did. Um, that's David Edelstein speaking. I really do recommend you go on the New York Magazine website, too, and read what David wrote today. The really the, the very a thing that's going to stay with me is a conversation the two of them had about how uh, doing the movie Capote 
uh, that Philip Seymour Hoffman insisted to the director that the movie be edited in such a way as to really explore um, the, the the less appetizing aspects of this character. That rather than wanting to look good as as most actors do, wanting to to, to come off as somehow or other engaging, engaging or at least a little bit more likable, which is what actors often insist on during the editing process. Hoffman was pushing the director in the other direction, which I think sort of goes to what we're saying right now. I want to take a quick break when we come back, because we have David for a limited amount of time, uh, and since uh, this whole Woody Allen thing has come up, I'd love to talk to him a little bit about, once again, sort of how you parse your admiration for Woody Allen against anything that you may be thinking uh, about what else he's done in his life. So, And Melanie will uh, be here to talk to us also about this latest iteration of this very peculiar story. We're going to switch gears a little bit here, and uh, we have uh, David Edelstein uh, here for a limited amount of time because he has to go to a screening. He's, uh, of course, a film critic for New York Magazine, for NPR's Fresh Air, for CBS Sunday Morning. Also with us, Melanie Kintaya. She is an actor, humorist, and the author of Actor, Writer, Whatever, Essays on My Rise to the Top of the Bottom of the Entertainment Industry. You get to see her at the Big Book Getaway. Uh, on February 22nd at the Mohegan Sun. She'll be on a panel about the mem- the genre of the memoir. Um, so, um, so David, I don't know how much longer you've got here, and, and so we're going to kind of work in reverse. I'm going to talk to Melanie a little bit later about kind of what unfolded over the weekend in Nicholas Kristof's column and elsewhere. Uh, so we'll go back to that and start with you because I know you have to leave. You know, I mean, j- just generally speaking, one of the things since 1992 every Woody Allen fan has had to do is kind of weigh you know what what is sort of now a matter of record even the fact that he he left his relationship with Mia Farrow and and took up with a, a much much younger woman who had been uh, Mia Farrow's adopted daughter uh, then there are these other allegations which resurfaced over the weekend that are considerably uh, more troubling. But, you know, just as a critic and also just as somebody who loves movie and as movies and as somebody of a generation uh, who, like me, would have been sh- whose sensibilities would have been shaped heavily by by Woody Allen. Um, you know, how do you handle any of those questions? How do you how do you how do you approach and engage with the work? And, and what do you do with whatever else you know uh, about the auteur? Uh, sorry, I, I I think I have about thirty seconds, so uh, I'm gonna <laughs> okay. I'm gonna take off now. Okay. <laughs> uh, this is a lose lose proposition talking about Woody Allen and uh, Dylan Farrow. I and I the the answer is I don't know the answer, and mm. I wouldn't particularly trust anyone who tells you that they do know the answer. I utterly believe Woody Allen, mm. and I utterly believe Dylan Farrow. Mm. Um, and one of both of them, you know, can't be right. I don't personally see anything in Woody Allen's work, and obviously I've, I know it pretty intimately, and I've met him, and I've read just about everything he's written. I don't see anything to suggest that um, he would in any way, shape, or form even think about molesting a seven-year-old girl, but I probably would have felt the same way if I'd lived next door to Ted Bundy, um, I don't um, – and and saying that, uh, you know, who who knows? Who knows what's under there? I think he's pretty hard on himself in a lot of ways. He um, He's made no secret of the fact that he, he pursues younger w- women, that he did pursue younger women, that he was very eager to uh, score as much as possible. He let us all know that he is an artist and artists create their own morality – that he is above certain moral laws. Um, he has never expressed 
the slightest bit of guilt for the the hurt that he caused Mia Farrow. He's always justified it. But when you read the letter that Dylan Farrow wrote, mm-hmm. oh, oh Lord, I, I mean, that does not sound like someone who doesn't believe what she's writing. That sounds as real as anything I've ever read. So you ask, how do we live this with this? Well, how do we live with Roman Polanski? How do I live with the fact that I think The Pianist is one of the you know great films of the last decade? Um, how do I support a man who has admitted that he molested a 13-year-old girl? How, for that matter, does Mia Farrow support him? Because mm-hmm. she's still his friend. Yeah. Um, how, how do I listen to Wagner when I know what a virulent anti-Semite he is? Um, one thing that you hope, one thing in, in Roman Polanski you see, I think, is um, maybe some... Some mitigating circumstances, you know. I mean, the man the man was raised under circumstances that I think would turn most of us, um, in, put make most of us insane. But do I forgive him? No, I don't forgive him. In the end, though, you have to you have to judge the art on its own terms. I think that's if, right. You know, I mean, I, I I was thinking about that this weekend. That you know, when I listen to Miles Davis. I listen to Miles Davis. Now, Miles Davis is a terrible person, a serial wife beater. Uh, but I don't think I'm listening to this guy who, who beat a series of wives. I'm, I'm listening to that. And when I watch Blue Jasmine, I, I think whatever I'm going to think about it. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's impossible to watch a movie and just constantly be. I mean, I, an exception might be a movie like Manhattan, which does, uh, you know, when you look back at a movie like Manhattan, you see all these, some of these questions about older men and younger women. Uh, Pauline Kael had this this really great line, uh, one of her one of her best. Although, how can you choose? She said, "You know, only Woody Allen would try to pass off a, a predilection for teenagers as you know a a uh, a quest for you know higher values for a more pure life, uh, because really he he." The the character played by Mariel Hemingway represents this fresh, open, uncynical kind of person who is going to free him from this world of the sort of neurotic intelligentsia um, represented by Diane Keaton and all the other horrible people at the cocktail parties that, that take up much of Manhattan. And in that case, yeah, you really – you can look at the art and you can say, no, there's something – there's something really deeply disturbed here. I think you can say the same thing about Blue Jasmine in in some ways because Blue Jasmine is a sort of pale imitation of a streetcar named Desire, but the the difference is that Tennessee Williams loved and identified with Blanche Dubois. She was his alter ego, whereas Woody Allen detests Blanche and does everything possible to humiliate her and expose her as, you know, a member of this class that defrauded so many people. And I think there's, you know, and I really do see not just misanthropy, but a kind of misogyny come out in that film, even though she is the protagonist. Um, we're going to let you uh, go. I'm keeping an eye on the clock for you. Uh, and I think you do have to go to a screening. Oh, I can stay here. <laughs> no, I, you know what? I have to see. You know, I'm seeing. I'm seeing the Wes Anderson, the new Wes Anderson. Oh. Because oh. it, it, opens, it opens the Berlin Film Festival. So yeah. I get to see it. 
So uh, it's really cool. Be kind to it's Wes. Really you, you and I have some disagreements over the years <laughs> about Wes. This one, Rafe finds us. In I know, this, I know. You know. I've seen I mean, the trailer. I'm very excited about it, actually. Yeah, the, the, cast seem, the cast seems great. And I, I hate to be laughing right after we've discussed this. I know. These horrible things. I wish I were here just to make fun of Bob Dylan and, <laughs> and, and talk about Melanie's book, which looks terrific. All right. Terrific. So uh, I'm really eager to read it. We promise to uh, have you back for our next subject matter will be light as a balloon. I Thank promise. you so much. <laughs> All, right, All right. So go, go watch the Wes Anderson movie. So, Melanie, can tell you, you know, over the weekend, obviously, a lot of us, uh, starting on Sunday morning, uh, if not earlier, were suddenly glued to our computer. We didn't know that uh, that Philip Seymour Hoffman was going to die later in the day. But, uh, but already this, this drama unfolding, which I sort of thought had gone away. You know, I mean, I was right. here in Connecticut in 1992 when it all unfolded and people sort of believed whatever they believed. And then for a whole group of other people, and you may be young enough to be one of these other people, you know, you may not have been particularly reading a lot of newspapers in 1992. So, you know, for, for a lot of people, maybe on Sunday, it was, you know, the, you might have known a whisper, a hint or something like that of this story, but but not have been around for the grappling about it that went on 20 years ago. And, and so, I mean, and I'm sure like a lot of people, you then read a whole bunch of sort of narratives and counter-narratives that were being offered up uh, in real time on the web yesterday. How did you come out of it? How did you process this whole story? Oh, my. Um, you know, I at first I had originally thought that, of course, Mia had put her up to it. This was just a bitter divorce. Who knows? And reading um, Dylan Farrow's um, blog post, it, it was so it was so raw and so wrought that you can't unread it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, afterwards, it, my husband and I were talking. We have tickets to Bullets Over Broadway mm-hmm. that he had gotten me for Christmas. Um, we Our intention was to go see him. Like, I'm like, you know, the thing is, it's not even as if I want to boycott it. It just it had uh, sort of touched me so deeply and sort of just reverberated inside of me. That's, like, horrific to think of on on any on any level as a parent my husband teaches high school and thinking of you know juniors in high school and you know young girls they're very much girls mm-hmm. and this older man having relationships with these very much girls and you know molesting a child and i i have a hard time believing that someone either a put her up to it or B, that she's lying, or this is some sort of false memory. I it, It's really difficult for me to go there in my head. And and then you start to, you know, the English major in me goes back and starts to deconstruct everything. Mm. You know, every Woody Allen movie that I've ever seen. And I, I think about, you know, David had said something about, you know, selecting your own moral universe. I think that is a line in Bullets Over Broadway that Carl Reiner says. Mm-hmm. Not Carl Reiner. Um, the Sun. Oh, I forget who plays um, the son. Rob Reiner. Rob Reiner, yeah. Says in in that movie, and I, I and um, you know, the relationship with Meryl Hemingway, and he had actually based that character on so a, a young girl that he had had a relationship with. Um, so all of these things are just very disturbing, and I think the Onion had a great piece uh, right after the Golden Globes, but before Dylan Farrow's. Um, Telling your story about, you know, this horrible pickle that Woody Allen has put us in, because on the one hand, he is this this uh, iconic filmmaker. And other on the other hand, um, I have to believe that he's done some deplorable things. 
Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, I'm still, as I look, and it's very difficult to see this, as you say, reading. And for people who haven't really didn't follow this over the weekend, it's very hard to recreate it for you. And in some respects, you really do have to go back and read Nicholas Kristof's column. Go jump from there to his blog, where the entirety of Dylan Farrow's letter is printed there. And, and I'm certainly with you, Melanie, and with David, that when you read the letter, um, the words do burn themselves into you, no matter what you thought about it going in. Uh, it, it does tilt you a little bit. And, and you know, I, I, as somebody who even sort of participated a little bit in the coverage back in 1992, remain kind of a 50-50 agnostic about this. I, I absolutely um, understand uh, how it could be true. I also understand how things were already very, very her- uh, horrible in that domestic universe then, and and uh, Mia Farrow very legitimately was feeling incredibly ang- angry. She could have seized upon, or she could have seized upon, or misunderstood something that Dylan said, and then apparently over the course of days, you know, made this videotape where she's. Uh, getting uh, Dylan to tell this story. This is back when Dylan was seven years old, and uh, I, having followed the McMartin case and some other cases, I mean, once again, you're always torn between believe the children when the children tell you this is happening, and it is really possible to implant these memories and to have stories that are not true, which children uh, believe at a certain level because they've kind of been manipulated into believing that, and we did see that with the McMartin case uh, years ago. So, you know, who knows? And, and it it, it, I guess I really wouldn't be encouraging you to get rid of your bullets over Broadway tickets. You know, maybe part of this is just engaging with the artist over and over again, seeing if you can understand better uh, what the nature of his art is, uh, what the, what relationship that has to whatever suspicions uh, we have about him and whatever we even really know about him as a matter, matter of record. I, I, I don't know. I mean, do you feel like morally obliged to dump your bullets over Broadway tickets? That's the thing. I don't feel morally obliged. And I think part of it is is something that David had touched upon, like Wagner. Mm-hmm. Wagner was not a, a not a good guy. Miles Davis, not a good guy. There's so many not a good people um, whose art I enjoy. But I think Kathleen Greer said it best when it's like, you know, I much prefer my deplorable artist long dead. Mm-hmm. The eugenicists, the, the <laughs> anti-Semites. The racists. I prefer them long dead, and um, and sort of you can. It's easier, I think, to se- separate the art from the artist um, when there's been time, and and the work endures, but the person is long gone. And it's more that I I don't think I'm going to enjoy the show in the same way because again, the English major in me. I'm not going to be sitting back and being transported and entertained. The English I'm going to be my brain is going to be constantly deconstructing the words that are coming out of these characters' mouth. Um, and you, I hear you, yeah. You yeah. know, I'm not I'm not going to be enjoying it in the same way because, again, that that letter it it just it really did um, burn right through me. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Let me grab one quick call from John. Then we're going to switch gears one more time. Here's John uh, calling from Woodstock. Hi, John. Hi, Colin. Um, uh, great show. Um, I, you know, something you said earlier about really looking at the art without looking at the artist and, and kind of looking at it on its own terms. I've thought about that a lot lately, and I don't think that's possible but, well, with living artists mm-hmm. because there's an economic connection that we have to them. When we purchase their book or go to their film or go to the, um, you know, a play or something that they've done, we're supporting them. And we're supporting who they are. We have the power 
to tell them, you know, I disagree with your stance. I know Orson Scott Card, who uh, wrote Ender's Game, right. was um, was going to be doing a, uh, um, a Superman comic for DC Comics. And there was this real, because of his um, uh, homophobic, and he's really worked against um, uh, gay rights and, and, and come out as a kind of outspoken, um, you know, uh, uh, opponent. And uh, a lot of folks in the comics community really came out and said, hey, we're not going to buy that. In fact, we're not going to buy anything by your company. Ultimately, the artist who was involved in it dropped out and said, I'm not going to do this. And I think, honestly, I think that was a positive thing. Because it's saying, you know, this is somebody that's part of our world, part of our community in a sense. And we have a responsibility to say, I don't agree with who you are, and I'm not going to support your art. I'm not going to spend my money on it. And so I think, I think there is a responsibility on, on us as consumers. Um, of art to really to speak out and to do something about it and, um, you know, not disconnect the art from the artist. All right, John, great call. Uh, I'm going to try to write more about this today on WNPR.org. It's time to say thank you to our great super guest here, uh, Melanie Kintaya. She is the author of Actor, Writer, Whatever, Essays on My Rise to the Top of the Bottom of the Entertainment Industry. See her February 22nd at the Big Book Getaway in the literary epicenter of Connecticut, the Mohegan Sun. We will be back to talk about Super Bowl commercials and specifically Bob Dylan putting whatever legacy uh, he has at risk. I know there's bad weather out there, but I'm so cozy in my new Joe Namath coat. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, our intern is Skylar Magnoli. Our executive producer is Katie Talarski, and Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Bruno Mars. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff performing shirtless under the band name The Chili Peppers with Excellent Mouthfeel, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, if we were Darth Vader, we could pickle you with a thought. A salute to pickling. And now... Back to Colin. I'm just going to let that uh, idea simmer in your mind for a second. We're going to be talking about Super Bowl commercials, and uh, mainly we're going to be talking about uh, Bob Dylan actually appearing sort of in two different Super Bowl commercials, one as himself in an ad for Chrysler, another uh, just using his music in in an ad in which a bear uh, goes into a store and gets yogurt. Uh, Joining us now is the guy we always go to about commercials, Steve Wolfberg, co-owner and chief creative officer for Cronin & Company, named Top Shop in Connecticut by Adweek Magazine. Uh, Congratulations on your honor, uh, honor Steve Wolfberg. First of all, before we go to the Dylan thing, uh, w- was there a, a clear winner last night? Was was there a really good commercial last night? I didn't really see too many that knocked my socks off. Well, you know, let me start by saying that I'm reticent to uh, critique other people's work because I don't like other people critiquing my work. But since you asked, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I was hoping on the 30th anniversary of 1984 by Apple there'd be some classic spot that we'd be talking about 30 years from now, and, and I'm not sure there was. And judging by the Twitter sphere, no one ever, no one else thought there was stuff that was fantastic. Um, the puppy love spot for with the Clydesdale and the puppy and the kind of weird thing the two animals were doing, um, that seemed to be the big winner with all the polls. But that's, you know, maybe I'm just getting old and cranky, but that didn't do it for me. Um, I don't like saccharin with my beer, but um, no big no big winners from what I could see, and I didn't think the work was – I thought the work was almost as uh, disappointing as the game. 
The um, you know, we're going to be talking with the two writers in just a second about about Bob Dylan. But from your point of view, I mean, Bob Dylan in this Chrysler ad, uh, this it's sort of an echo of the ones that were done by Eminem and sure. by Clint Eastwood in the yep. past. Yep. Um, I had forgotten that he's done other commercials in the past. But I mean, for somebody who works in the business, I assume this isn't a really big shock that you guys in the business assume. Well, we could probably get just about anybody. <laughs> Anybody with enough money. I, I thought it was, a, I mean, from a standpoint of who are they going to get next? I mean, because Chrysler, historically, the last couple of years, has kept doing these surprise spots. They don't leak them to the press in advance, which I think is cool, so people look forward to them. I thought the Clint Eastwood spot, Halftime in America, was just a great concept and greatly delivered and just a great spot. The M&M spot was very, very solid. You know, comp- of, that th- of the three, I didn't think the Bob Dylan spot worked as well. Um, and I, you know, again, he used to be so anti-establishment, but but everybody's got a price now. And he he got he had he had two uh, two uh, licks at the at the uh, popsicle stick yesterday in terms of you know having his music on the Chibani spot and being live and in person in the Chrysler spot. Um, listen, uh, Steve Wolfberg, uh, thanks very much. We're good. we're doing sort of high speed stuff right here because we've got a whole bunch of guests here. So, and also, I want it's, he's given me such a great place to piggyback onto. So, let me just uh, introduce the next two guests. Uh, Cliff Fernald is the editor of Roots World Magazine and host of uh, host on WPKN Radio in Bridgeport. Uh, and Ben Nadoff Hafri is the deputy arts uh, and entertainment editor for a, a publication I discovered today, and I will now read every day for the rest of my life. Uh, but I'm so new to it, I'm not even even sure I'm saying the name correctly. Is, is it Policy Mike? Is that how you say it? Yep, that's how you say it. Yeah. It's terrific, by the way. I am embarrassed to say that I'd never heard of it. Uh, oh, and, all right, we're young. And I love it. Um, I'm, I'm going to start with you, Cliff Fernald, uh, for uh, a second here. I want to hear both of you on this. I have a clearer sense of what Ben thinks because I read his piece today. But, uh, Cliff, you know, you just heard Steve Wolfberg say, well, it turns out, I mean, everybody has a price. Wasn't the whole point of Bob Dylan at one point anyway that everybody doesn't have a price, everybody shouldn't have a price, and he, above all, didn't have a price? No, I don't. I, I think that was part of, of, of Dylan's theater from day one, from, you know, folk music was, was the cool thing, so be a folk musician. But all along, it seemed he wanted to be a rock musician, and he plugged in and ticked off a whole lot of people in Newport because he... He knew it wouldn't matter to the people who were going to really make him famous, which was rock fans. Mm-hmm. And I think he's done that for his whole career. It's 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 a theatrical piece. He's kind of like um, what's his name, um, Professor Marvel in the the Wizard of Oz. He's whatever you want him to be at any given moment. So he's been you know a folk singer, a rock star, a political writer, a esoteric poet, Christian. You left out born again Christian. Yeah, and you know he's also been yeah, and a born again Jew, um, on another record. So he's he's constantly changing. He's constantly and he's constantly playing on the the the, the joke of I'm an anti-establishment figure who is totally into the establishment. You know, Ben, I, I feel like my sensibilities about this are colliding with a couple of things. First of all, they're colliding with the movie Inside Lewin Davis, which is about this completely uncompromising guy, a guy who refuses to even be as compromising as Bob Dylan. He's he's so grumpy about the whole thing. He won't join something that sounds like it's going to be Peter, Paul, and Mary. He won't grow a certain kind of beard. He won't do anything. He won't do anything that anybody wants him to do. Um, and, and so am I... Am I buying into some kind of myth about Bob Dylan that, as Cliff is suggesting, was never a reality? Uh, I, I think to some extent, yes, but I don't think it's as simple as that. I think that Bob Dylan, from the beginning of his career, has sort of had a contentious relationship with his fans. I mean, everyone's always trying to saint Bob Dylan, 
um, and especially late in his life, he's sort of surrounded by these hagiographers who want to make it look like he's the most authentic folk musician, um, you know, something that America has truly lost. But he's sort of consistently from going electric in 1965 to any of the commercials he's done in the past 15 years to the Christmas album he released in 2009. He's sort of consistently pushing back against people who want to make him look like the Messiah, basically. Um, I think, and I think in many ways that's what makes him so authentic is that he's consistently refused to do what his audience wants. He won't be the folk singer just as they decide that he is the folk singer, and that's when he plugs in. Um, and he won't be sort of the grandfather of American folk music that everyone wants him to be now. He, he doesn't just sit back and explain away his songs. He sort of sells them to, to Chrysler and Shobani Yogurt. <laughs> and so back to you, Cliff. Um, you know, on the other hand, I feel as though this the other thing that this moment sort of smacks up against uh, is the recent death of Pete Seeger. And and even though Pete Seeger died a, a very wealthy man, uh, and I mean, he was almost a member of the 1% uh, by the time uh, that he died, it, to me, it's impossible uh, to imagine Pete Seeger doing a Flomax commercial or, uh, you know, anything other than a public service, you know, anti-logging commercial or so, something like that. It's hard to me for me to imagine him doing anything like that. So so does that is there some kind of important qualitative distinction there? Is Was Pete Seeger maybe willing to hold on to to a vision of folk music, which, as you suggest, Bob Dylan never really bought into for more than, you know, a year or two? Well, I mean, you know, to to clarify one thing, I I think Dylan's a genius. I I think as a poet, as a songwriter, he's great. And but part of his genius is his being able to constantly change and move and and you know be whatever color the rock he's sitting on is. So to compare him to Seeger is really not particularly fair in any way. I don't think because Seeger never had that kind of, you know, I'm going to be a pop star. I mean, from day one, he was constantly undercutting any chance of being a pop star by insisting on being down on the union line and taking shots at the House on american Activities Committee and all the other things that he did because that's who he was. And Dylan, on the other hand, I think from day one, was a poet who wanted to be a poet and wanted to find whatever medium he could to push that poetry into, and if it was folk music, that was good, and if it was pop music, rock music, that was good, you know, if it was Christianity or Judaism, that was good, because it got at the essence of what he wanted to do, which is to be a, a poet. You know, so, yeah, I don't, I think Seeger, Seeger was completely unique. I don't think there's anyone I can think of who was quite like Pete Seeger. Well, let me ask Ben Nadav-Hafri about that, because I, I think you know, now I'm wondering, will I see Bruce Springsteen in a pistachio commercial someday? Um, and, and, and I mean, is that is that is it reasonable to expect that anybody really ultimately can be co-opted in this manner? Or or is maybe somebody is Bruce Springsteen? Is he my Obi-Wan Kenobi? He's, is he my last best hope as somebody who who can't be manipulated into doing something purely commercial? Uh, well, I would say Bruce Springsteen is definitely my Obi-Wan Kenobi, so <laughs> I, I doubt that you'd ever see him in a commercial just because of his own personal preferences. But in terms of the, the Pete Seeger-Bob Dylan distinction, I think they sort of, Pete Seeger's almost more aligned with the character of Lewin Davis in the film because he he rarely even played his own songs. I mean, most of his work was as a as a folk 
preservationist, someone who sort of collects songs and popularized them, though he did write ones that were successful too, um, whereas Bob Dylan was sort of always always doing his own unique brand. So I think they kind of operated in different ways in that sense too. Um, and that's, that's one of the reasons why you'd never see PC or doing a commercial, but you might see Bob Dylan doing one. Um, but I, I do think that Bruce Springsteen is safe. <laughs> we say that now. And I, now I feel like, you know, if Kurt Cobain had lived long enough, you know, he'd be in, in a Chevy commercial or something. That, yeah, well, luckily we won't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I think Springsteen's safe from this one, too, quite honestly. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if anyone were to do a commercial for a car company during a New Jersey Super Bowl, it's Bruce Springsteen. But luckily, we didn't have to deal with that. <laughs> and, and so, Cliff, I'll let you kind of have the last word. So in, in terms of how you understand Bob Dylan. Um, this doesn't really change anything, right? I mean, seeing him in a Chrysler commercial, hearing uh, I want you in a Chobani yogurt commercial, it doesn't really change anything at all, right? No, not really. I mean, the song is the song in the case of the Chobani thing. And in the case of the, the Chrysler thing, it wasn't his best poetry, let's face it, if he's who actually wrote the thing. Mm. Um, some of it was pretty pretty weak, but it'll we'll forget about it. It wasn't a great commercial, I don't think, so we'll forget about it. And Dylan will go back to doing another Christmas album that'll be followed by another brilliant piece of songwriting. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to have to stop there. Uh, thanks to everybody who helped out with today's show. And by the way, thanks very much, Ben Nadav Hafri, not only for being on the show today, but introducing me to Policy Mike, which is. Uh, about to become an invaluable source to me. Uh, Thank you very much. All right. We'll be in touch. We'll be in touch with for future stuff. Uh, it's a great, it's policymike.org uh, or, or, or .com maybe. I'm not sure. So uh, special thanks also to Betsy Kaplan who really uh, pulled this show together. We do this uh, on a close deadline here. Uh, it worked out great. Tomorrow we are going to be doing a show about pickling. Wolfie is producing it. Um, I, I think we can do a whole hour about pickling. <laughs> I'm not, a, we, do we have the competitive pickling Competitive pickle eater. All right, so we're oh we're golden. You don't want to miss this show. Wednesday we'll we'll be talking about the Beatles, uh, who also have not done Chobani commercials to the best of my knowledge. I think Ringo did do a bunch of commercials, didn't he? All right. Anyway, it'll be, it'll be more about the 50th anniversary of the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, and the week will unfold in that way. I'm Kyone Wolf, and everybody was so upset about the Janet Jackson nipple shot, but everybody saw the nipples of Anthony Kiedis and Flea, and nobody said anything. Maybe because, damn, they looked good.